going to Matthew chapter 7. So in our series through the book of Matthew, this is message number 16, entitled Seeing Clearly. We're going to be looking at the first six verses here in Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged, and with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. The king sat on his throne, satisfied as he ruled over his kingdom. His enemies feared him. His people loved him. He had wealth. He had power. He had fame. He had access to anything that he wanted. In walked an old prophet, no doubt with bushy beard and coarse clothes. Rather than giving the king a blessing, he told him a story. There was a very rich man who had everything, and a very poor man who had nothing. Well, except he had one little young lamb. Well, as rich men are wont to do, he found himself in need to entertain a guest. And he must provide a meal. But he would not take any of his own animals to provide meat for the table, and instead he stole the poor man's one beloved lamb, killed it, prepared it, and served it to his guest. Now, of course, when hearing this, the king was immediately and intensely angry and took an oath on himself that the man who did this would be slain. But first, he would make a fourfold restitution. Perhaps the eyes of the prophet had never been more full of fire or sadness at the same time. He stared at the king, and then the prophet spoke the sentence that changed everything. Thou art the man. Thou art the man. Of course, this is a loose rendering of the events recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 12 when God sent the prophet Nathan to confront King David about his sin with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Nathan deftly laid a trap for David, and David was completely caught. And after he passed a judgment On the actions of this man, David realized that he had actually just judged himself. Well, that brings us to one of the most well-known and least understood passages in the Bible. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not. Well, the last part of chapter 6 that we looked at last time warned against living our lives in order to accumulate wealth on the earth, as that being our 
driving focus and purpose in life. And we found out in that passage that we can be driven to that actually in two different ways. One way, we can be motivated to pile up money and and possessions of this earth's goods. We could be motivated by greed, um, by envy to have more than others, or simply just an insatiable desire to have more. But we can also be motivated to that pursuit also by worry and anxiety. We can be so worried and so anxious about tomorrow and and, and about the troubles that may come that we're driven to pile up everything that we can in order to prepare ourselves against such possibilities. And both of these actually cut off generosity and they lead to enslavement to money and possessions as Jesus spoke of. Now the alternative of course as Jesus said is to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness first. That that be priority, that that be motivating and guiding and controlling in our lives and now this recognizes that this present life then is about more than money and clothes and food. And of course, all those things, they all have their proper place, but they're not to take place of preparing for his kingdom by pursuing righteousness, by letting our light shine that others may see and glorify God. Now, Jesus did not say that we shouldn't work or we shouldn't save or we shouldn't plan. He was talking about being enslaved by the pursuit of, to accumulate wealth so that we're driven by it, we're controlled by it, and we are consumed by it. And he reminded us that we cannot serve two different masters as their slaves. Now, chapter 7 is the uh, ending part of this, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, and it starts here with uh, certainly a change of subject from chapter number 6. But this theme that we've noticed all the way back from chapter 5 very early on, this theme of relational righteousness continues to run through the entire body of this Sermon on the Mount. Now, relational righteousness, again, describes what is required by certain relationships. In other words, um, man to God um, husband to wife in a marriage relationship, um, neighbors, brothers, etc. Et if we think about how that the righteousness of God is typically described, God's righteousness is typically described not by comparing his words or actions against some sort of a fixed standard that's outside of himself, but his words and actions toward others, toward those other other beings of his creation that he has made is typically how his righteousness is described. So how are we um, required to act toward someone that, that we bear a relation to, whether it be <clears throat> a husband to a wife or a wife to a husband or to parents or to children or to brothers or other family or to community members or to, or to members of, of the same body in a, in a church and so on? Well, verses 1 to 6 here in Matthew 7 have to do with judging and particularly with forbidding uh, a harsh judgmentalism as well as a hypocritical type of judgment. Now, some want to come here and impose this as, as this blanket prohibition uh, 
of any judgment of any kind. But obviously that can't be right. I mean, even this Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 to 7 calls for exercising discernment and making distinguishment between hypocrites and dogs and pigs, as we'll see in, in this passage, false prophets, as well as enemies, neighbors, brothers. So obviously there is discernment that is needed. So we want to know what Jesus said and what he meant by what he said, and only then can we begin to work through what's required of us and the different ways that this may apply in our lives. In verses 1 to 2, Jesus speaks about the use of uh, a just measure. And in verses 3 to 6, he talks about blind eye surgery. So we'll look at this uh, beginning with verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, the word for judge that is used here is very common. It's used in, in many places throughout the New Testament. And it's a word that has a range of meaning, which is not uncommon. It can range all the way from simply analyzing and evaluating all the way more toward the other end of condemning and even to the punishing or avenging um, of crimes or wrongs. So obviously this is a word that does have a, a more formal and a legal sense to it when it's used to speak of perhaps like a civil judge or some sort of a ruler. Now the context here though continues to be interpersonal relationships and so that sort of official judgment is, is not in view. This comes along the line more of the evaluating, um, analyzing, e evaluating, or, or perhaps um, rendering um, those sort of, of determinations. Now, the word here, judge not, that phrase is, is also, as I understand it grammatically, is in the present and the active. So, in other words, it's describing an ongoing action. So, it's um, sort of a, along the line of saying, stop judging. Stop judging, um, referring to a judgmental and a hypercritical attitude toward others. Now, we could describe it as being harsh, as um, being uh, fault-finding, as being merciless in our assessments of others. And that's what we are being told not to do or to stop doing. If you think about it, Paul spoke very similar to, the, to this in Romans chapter 14 in, in that letter. In just a few verses there, verses 10 to 12, Paul wrote, But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so that every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now, what Paul gets at in, in Romans chapter 14, and what we can also see here um, in this passage as well, is that to, to judge in this way, to um, sort, of, sort of pass a, a decision of condemnation on another, is actually to put ourselves in the place of God. And that's what, that's what Paul was getting at in, Ro in Romans 14. He says, every slave, every servant there, every, every bond slave is going to stand or fall before his own master. 
His own master is the one that, that's going to judge his actions, his thoughts, his, his doings, and what some other master may have thought of that, of that slave amounts to nothing. And so Paul applied that, obviously, to our relationships to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, as, as believers in, in Jesus. And he said, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we're all going to have to give an account of ourselves to him. So why would we judge our brother in that way? So again, to actually judge in this way, in the, in the sense that, that we are uh, incessantly fault-finding and, and mercilessly condemning others, is to try to put ourselves in the place of God. Well, Jesus gives the reason for not judging. He says, judge not, but then he gives the reason for not judging. And in fact, he'll more fully explain that in the next verse. But he says, that you be not judged. So the warning here is, is also a reminder that we shall be judged. We are moving towards some sort of an account in the future that we are going to have to give for ourselves. And we're going to have to answer for our different relationships in our life and the, and the righteousness that was required of us in all of those relationships just as has much been the subject of the Sermon on the Mount. Now here when he speaks of that you be not judged, he's talking about judgment before God. So as believers in Jesus Christ, we will not face judgment and condemnation for our sins. In other words, those who, who die in faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible shows us they're not going to stand before God one day and, and their souls be judged to see whether or not they're going to be saved and, and inherit eternal life. That's already settled. But those who do die in faith in Jesus Christ are one day going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and are going to give an account of their lives, their thoughts, their words, their actions. And we're told that we will receive rewards and that we will also suffer the loss of rewards at that judgment. Now, Jesus already spoke of rewards. Uh, I spoke of that in, in chapter 6 in particular. And so we see that there's, there's, a, there's sort of a continuation of that thought as we get here of, of future judgment and the prospect of future reward or future loss. Verse number 2. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged, and with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. So what Jesus is explaining here, the last part of verse 1, and he's explaining this here in verse 2, we are liable to judgment by the same standard we have imposed on others. And he's already alluded to this. If you think back earlier in chapter 6 and the model prayer, you know, our Father which art in heaven, he's forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And Jesus goes on to emphasize, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses or sins or, or various words that are used there for that. So we are liable to be judged by the same standard that we have imposed on others. Now, what Jesus is referring to here is what we might call a statement of reciprocity. Um, 
It's consistent with Old Testament wisdom sayings, and it shows up in the New Testament in a few different ways. Um, Jesus uses a similar phrase as this in a completely different context in in another place. Um, We also have sayings in the New Testament referring to that you're going to reap what you have sown, that sort of thing. Um, We get these sort of statements in the, you know, in in, in Proverbs especially, um, in sort of um, common language, you know, we, we say things like, well, what comes around goes around and, and that sort of thing. Now, what we have to understand is that we are not subject to any sort of a, a karmic uh, retribution in this life, but God has so ordered this universe that he has created that there is a concept of reciprocity. In other words, the many times we're seen when the, the wicked are taken in the snare that they have lain for the righteous. You know, they, they fall in the pit that they dig to set a, to set a trap um, for someone else and that sort of thing. So that you're going to reap what you sow. That's the principle here that Jesus is alluding to. And my understanding is, is that he, what he's giving is, is even perhaps a form of, of maybe what had become sort of a, a rabbinical type proverb um, within Judaism. But, but be that as it may, it's, it's clearly very similar to what we read um, in the Old Testament as well. So what is he saying here? Well, he's, he's warning us that harsh and merciless judgment of others will receive harsh and merciless judgment remember that jesus said back in in chapter 5 and verse 7 that the merciful are blessed because they will receive mercy now exactly how all this plays out i can't tell you but it does seem to be here as well as in other places in the new testament in particular that some way in which that we have treated and related to others is going to come back on us in, in some way. Now, I think that we don't oftentimes intend to be so severe with other people, but I think oftentimes we are merciless toward them because we are so often blind to our own faults we just don't tend to see our own faults as well as we see the faults of others and i'm not denying that others have faults others have others have faults but i have faults too and you have faults as well and we just don't tend to see our own faults as well as we see those of other people So I think sometimes we don't intend necessarily to be merciless. We don't intend to be severe. We don't intend to be harsh or judgmental, but we end up that way because we just don't see our own faults very clearly. And therefore, we're very quick to condemn faults in others. And that sort of leads us right into the next part of this passage, beginning with verse number 3, where Jesus speaks of this blind eye surgery. Verse number 3. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Now, Jesus goes on here to add another aspect. So we've, we've seen what we might call in the opening two verses the improper judgment um, being a harsh and, and severe um, critical judgment. 
And another aspect of improper judgment that's added to here is the aspect of hypocritical judgment. Now, there is a play on the terms that's at work here. Moat and beam or a speck and log as, as some of the other uh, translations have, have given it. And the, the point is, is that it's, it, it's, it, it's extremes. So the moat is just a tiny particle. It's, it's like a, a small splinter. Whereas a beam could refer to, for instance, the, the beefy ridge beam that holds up a, a roof. And so obviously the point of the comparison is that, that they are ex- extremely different. One is extremely small as compared to the other being extremely large. So the point is that while one is almost imperceptible, the other is completely conspicuous. So the moat and the beam, and again, whether uh, it refers you know, precisely to, to this or that is, is not really what's at issue they are obviously figurative references to, the, to, our, to our faults. And the point is, why are, are you finding a small fault in your brother and seeking to correct that, all the while ignoring a larger fault in yourself? And again, Jesus uses terms that puts this at the extreme. It, and it sort of reminds us of uh, the parable in uh, The Unforgiving Servant in Matthew chapter number 18, where the one owes just a very small um, debt, the other owes just large, enormous debt, the large, enormous debt is forgiven, and then in turn he won't forgive that very small debt that's owed to him. It's, the point is the comparison that is extreme. And notice here again that Jesus refers to your brother's eye. Now, we saw this earlier in chapter number five. Now, brother obviously can be uh, literally a, a brother, uh, or it can be a fellow countryman, and it's used that way in the Bible in, in different times, but it also is a term used in particular in the New Testament in many cases to speak of members of a faith community. So, a brother in Christ might be a way that we would put it. And it really is the intention here in the Sermon on the Mount. So this goes along with the opening verse, and it reveals that a judgmental attitude is quick to censure and condemn and to point out the perceived fault of others, and so oftentimes is blind to their own faults. Verse 4, Or how wilt thou say to thy brother... Let me pull the moat out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. So Jesus moves from perceiving to extracting. In other words, you not only notice some fault in others, but take it on yourself to correct the fault of others. How can you tell others what they ought to do, and how can you correct their faults when you don't even see what you yourself should do. In other words, as as Jesus is giving this example, he's deliberately put it again in the extremes. you, you You are taking care to try to correct some smaller fault in your brother, all the while blind to your own larger fault that you are obviously 
not addressing. In verse number five, he says, Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Now here again, Jesus uses this term, hypocrite. And hypocrite referred to pretenders, such as actors on a stage that were pretending to be some character. Hypocritical judgment here is quick to find fault in others and to hold others to a a merciless, exacting standard while not perceiving one's own faults as clearly or condemning one's own faults as severely. So Jesus puts this issue in terms of seeing clearly. And thou shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eyes. Now this, of course, reminds us of the reference to the evil eye that we had there in chapter 6 much earlier. And as you recall, the evil eye was a, a greedy eye that's being likened to a diseased eye that cannot see clearly and so isn't able to discern true value between earthly riches and heavenly riches. So here, a hypocritical eye is one that is so focused on the perceived faults of others that it can't see one's own faults. And this condition... This um, hypocritical eye is oftentimes further complicated by a false humility. So think about Jesus uh, telling of of the publican and the Pharisee, Luke chapter 8, verses 9 to 14. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And again, you've just got an extreme example that Jesus is using. I mean, imagine someone standing and praying that way. God, I thank you that I'm not like these others. I'm better than they are. I do all of these things, and I don't do... All of this, look at them, they're terrible. Thank you. As if he's giving God the credit for it all. Again, a false humility. Talk about being blinded to one's own faults. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is describing here in Matthew chapter 7. And he's saying, you're, you're, you are functioning as a, as a hypocrite. How are you going to correct this small fault in someone else when you can't even see the glaring fault that you have yourself. Well, then we come to verse number 6, and this gives us the conclusion. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. 
Now, at first glance, it might seem like this verse is unrelated. Um, But it does actually conclude these verses about judgment quite nicely. What is this, what's this verse about? So if you sort of step back for a minute and get a, get a bigger picture, what's this verse about? This verse is about discernment, is what's being spoken of. Now, here you see that dogs and swine are contrasted with brother that is mentioned earlier. Now, obviously, dogs and, and pigs were contemptible and unclean animals. And I know that, you know, demets or, or dogs are domesticated um, pets that, that we love today, um, but the type of dogs that's, that's referred to here um, were much more savage, wild dogs, um, scavengers, and not by any means were they domesticated um, pets and beloved animals, and, and they were also unclean animals. And when you think about that by the old covenant law, one of the reasons why they make such a good illustration is that there was no way by the old covenant law to make them clean they were unclean they were they were abominable there was no way to clean them there was no way to make them unabominable according to the old covenant law they're they're just they're just um you know despised and this makes it a very good illustration of what jesus is saying now the verse that he gives us here in verse six is very much in the vein of certain wisdom sayings, especially when we, again, when we keep this in its context. So think about some of these statements from Proverbs. So Proverbs chapter 9, verses 7 to 9. He that reproveth a scorner getteth to himself shame, and he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. How about Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5? Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Well, those two verses seem to be saying exactly the opposite things. Well, they're not. And the point is, is that it takes wisdom to discern. You have one situation where one course of action is appropriate and another situation where the other course of action is appropriate. Again, it's speaking about discernment. Proverbs 23 and verse number 9. Speak not in the ears of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of thy words. Or Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 11, which seems particularly appropriate. As a dog returneth to his vomit, so a fool returneth to his folly so jesus says give not that which is holy unto the dogs neither cast ye your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you and again he's talking about the need for discernment clearly we must be able to discern who it is that we are dealing with understanding what again what the relation is that we have to them understanding also that there does come a time to move on there's a time as as proverbs says to answer not the fool according to his folly there is a time to not give holy things to the dogs and to the pigs 
So we have to have, if we put this sort of all together, we have to have the wisdom, we have to have the discernment to understand when it is appropriate to speak and what it is appropriate to speak. So as we think about this passage, the point of this passage is not that we must be simpletons, accepting everyone's thoughts and opinions or behavior. And this verse is often used this way today. Oh, judge not. You, you, can't, you can't make any judgment about anybody or anything at any time. So we're just to be simpletons, and we're just to accept everyone and everything and, and every, every folly and, and notion. Well, we know that that's not the case on the one hand because the Sermon on the Mount itself calls us to exercise discernment in numerous cases. We have to discern who are our neighbors, who are our brothers, even who are our enemies. And we have to discern that properly so that we can act appropriately toward them. Now, we have to discern hypocrites as we've seen in chapter 6, as we're seeing here once again. A little later in chapter 7, we have to discern false prophets. And this is certainly not the last word that Jesus is going to have to say about any of these things. So we clearly have to have and to exercise discernment or judgment. Now by the end of chapter number 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus instructs that we have to be able to discern between Jesus' words and the words of others. Why? Well, because we're bound by the words of Jesus. We are constrained by the words of Jesus. We will be judged by the words of Jesus, but we are not bound by the words of others. So we have to be able to discern what is the difference So Jesus speaks to judgment here in this passage, but not, again, in the sense that we're never to judge anything in any way. For example, we could take an equally blunt statement that says we are to judge. John chapter 7, verse 24. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. So here he says, judge not. There he says, judge righteous judgment. Obviously, these things are not in contrast to one another. What we are warned about here and what we are being commanded about here is that we are not to judge harshly or hypocritically, mercilessly, severely. And we must keep in mind that our judgments is always constrained in at least three ways. And I guess you might say this really amounts to a great deal of humility. And I think it's along the line of what Paul was talking about in his letter to the churches of Galatia when he said, brothers, when when one's overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore him. So think about these three things about our judgment. Number one, it's limited. 
our judgment is limited. It's limited, of course, by the fact that we simply just don't know everything. We don't. We don't know everything. We don't know everything about what God's Word has to say. We don't know everything about different situations and relevant factors. We always have to keep in mind that our judgments are limited. What we can see or what we hear is oftentimes just a very small piece of the story. I imagine that, that many of us have at times maybe rushed to conclusions about things to realize that we were maybe quite embarrassingly wrong. We had misread or misunderstood the situation. So I'm just saying, we have to know that our judgment is always limited. It's always limited because we are limited. That means that secondly, our judgments are always fallible. Now the judgments of Jesus Christ, they are infallible. They're without error. They're they're without any, any problem whatsoever. They are fully true. Our judgments are not that way. Even our best judgments are going to be tainted with with error and and some wrongs. And even though we can have the best of intentions, we are oftentimes just plain wrong in what we think that we have seen or what we think we know. Just wrong. So our judgments are fallible. They are limited. And then thirdly, we have to keep in mind that our judgments are constrained by the fact that they are non-decisive. They're non-decisive. In other words, we do not get any say whatsoever in the eternal fate of other people. Our, our counsel, we don't, we don't even get to submit a friend of the court brief in that case. Our judgment amounts to nothing in that determination. There is one judge, and that is God, and he will judge righteous judgment unfailingly. Not only that, our judgment is non-decisive in determining the rewards or loss of rewards of a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And that's exactly what Paul was talking about there in Romans chapter 14, He says, why are you judging another man's servant? Every servant is going to stand or fall before his own master. It's going to be an accounting to to Jesus Christ. We're not going to be there to act as the prosecution. So we don't pass judgment on these things in terms of decisiveness. God is the judge. He is the one who can and will judge, who, who can and will destroy both body and soul in hell of those that do not believe. So again, we have to understand these sort of limits. Yes, we have to make judgments of of things and and situations, and we have to, and and we have to grow in our wisdom and our discernment and our knowledge of of Scripture, And, and I would as well say we need to grow in our love and concern. What is the motivation that we have in this relationship toward another? But our judgments are always limited always limited well the truth of course is that everyone 
will be judged by God, everyone. God does know all, and God does see all. And I've heard people sometimes say, oh, well, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me, as if that's better. The worst I can do is just, is just get it wrong for you. God's going to get it right. You ought to be much more afraid of that than you are of my opinion. God knows all. God sees all. So there's no hiding. There's no concealing. There's no deceiving. There's no talking your way out of God's judgment. And every one of us will be judged by God. But of course, the greatest gift that we could ever receive, we receive through faith, and that is that the fate of our souls are judged in Jesus Christ. And see, my relief and my comfort and even my hope is not that you can't judge me. I have no comfort in that. My comfort is that God judged me by judging his son. And I thought of the way that the Irish hymn writer Charity Lee Smith wrote about this, 1800s. This is the second stanza, probably a well-known song to many today, but she wrote, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. We don't escape that judgment, but through faith, that judgment fell on Jesus Christ, and we are delivered from the wrath of